All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast. You can see my guest here. She's Naomi Wolf, who is a feminist. She's a public intellectual, best-selling author, columnist, and professor. She is a graduate of Yale University and received a doctorate from Oxford, so she's nobody's fool. And she's pretty book smart, and it turns out she's pretty street smart, too. She's the co-founder and CEO of DailyClout.io, a successful civic tech company, where you can read about what she's up to these days. Now, I first became aware of her when she counseled Al Gore. We were told, the story went, that she, um, this woman told Al Gore that he needed to up his game a little bit in uh, the alpha male category. And it turns out that wasn't the story, according to the New York Times. Uh, But um, I just became aware of her because Rush Limbaugh would talk about her incessantly because... <laughs> yeah, because of that. So I became aware of her through that and uh, began following her a little bit. But this COVID thing has just really uh, taken off. Um, she provided counsel to not just politicians and big shots, but she has provided her own counsel. And it's probably turned, it turns out she's her best counsel. Um, she was canceled for what she was doing. Why? Because she told the truth. During the pandemic, she's got the goods. She's brought the receipts. Uh, Her book, Facing the Beast, her latest one, helps explain her efforts to tell this truth to as many people as she can and get it heard. And she does so with proof and without apology. Uh, She is an inspiration, actually. Facing the Beast is, we hear, a devastating, detailed account of wrong think deplatforming, and an unexpected political, personal, and spiritual transformation that followed one of the most divisive times in American history. That continues today, to which she can attest. And now, an author with a similar name and a husband in big pharma or some medical uh, job of some sort in Canada is attempting to defame her. Indeed, has written a book to defame her. So we'll want to talk about that. We'll want to talk about what she found out in the special papers she, she got a hold of. And welcome, Naomi Wolf. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. Um, You know, we have uh, seen what you've done. At least some of us have. You saw something really fishy with the COVID data. The efficacy of the injections pushed by the government, pushed by everybody. I mean, you were just a baby killer and a grandma killer if you didn't take the, the shot. And she started looking into it. And that got her canceled. And her friends left her, and she found a new friend, family of friends on the right. Um, she's not, she's not a conservative per se, I guess, but she just wants to be with people who will listen to her message, and, and we're willing to listen because she knows her thing. She first came on the radar of her really big detractors by going over the Green New Deal and reading 
every word of it, which I have not done. I've looked at a few things, but not all of it. And what she found was it was rife with socialism and regulatory capture of the American public. And that really got on the radar of a woman by the name of Naomi Klein, spokeswoman woman for the Green New Deal, whose husband is a healthcare guiding light of some sort for Canada. And that's the broad brush. But I want to get the details from uh, Dr. Naomi Wolf. Uh, Naomi, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. We're not, we're not the big guys. We're the little guys. We appreciate it. Um, so can you flesh out the details of what has been going on? Sure. Um, and all the guys matter, all the guys and girls, yeah, right? Willing sure. to do truth at this time really make a difference. So thank you. Sure. So you mentioned two important things. Um, one of them is what I do describe in my new book, Facing the Beast, Courage, Faith, and Resistance in a New Dark Age, which is indeed that, um, you know, for 35 years, I've been a fixture in the liberal media and celebrated for reporting on women's um, health issues, among other issues. Um, that was my beat. And so I was very surprised in June of 2021 when I did the exact same thing and on Twitter reported accurately that women were um, describing menstrual symptoms upon receiving mRNA injections. Um, and I literally said, unconfirmed needs more investigation. But that one accurate tweet uh, was the focus, as it turns out, of the White House, uh, which uh, engaged in a flurry of emails with the CDC and Twitter and Facebook to arrange to deplatform me. This came out subsequently through to lawsuits by attorneys general. And not just to deplatform me, which happened rather um, dramatically, but to smear me around the world um, all at once, which is really interesting. And so to my amazement, when I was kicked off of Twitter, and I didn't know why at that time, I didn't know the White House was behind it, uh, I, I also became kind of a non-person in liberal media elite circles where I'd been a kind of, you know, public figure for so long. Um, so, you know, as I described in Facing the Beast, I was exiled. I was kicked off of lists. I was, you know, investors took their money back out of my company. I was all the journalists who and editors who had commissioned me for 35 years, um, you know, wouldn't speak to me, wouldn't get quotes before they, you know, ran identical pieces slandering me. It was really remarkable. And I think kind of an object lesson to other journalists to kind of scare them away from asking questions about this injection. Purpose pitch is what they call it in baseball. What is it called? A purpose pitch. Oh, interesting. Backs you, back you off home plate. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. So, you know, back to what was more important than my personal reputation and career was the fact that the health of women in the West and in the United States was being severely endangered. I'm not a medical doctor, but all you need is eighth grade biology to know that if women are having menstrual symptoms in 2021, they're going to have fertility problems in 2023. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, and so then you mentioned another piece of this puzzle, which is uh, after having been kicked out of my liberal circles, I was amazed to find that the people who did want to talk to me were conservatives and libertarians because you know, they wanted to know if women and babies were being endangered. And I think that speaks very highly of them. Um, and so even though I consider myself still a classical liberal, 
I did find a new home among a whole new set of friends, having a whole new set of conversations uh, on the right. And um, in the course of that, I realized that a lot of what I believed was was fake. It was based on lies. So, uh, you know, one of the essays in the book is called Dear Conservatives, I Apologize, where I enumerate all the things that I was sure were true that turn out really to be totally fake, you know, ranging from the Steele dossier to the Russia hoax to, <laughs> I was, right, I was completely um, bamboozled. Um, but the other thing that happened along the way, which is very important, is uh, I convened at Steve Bannon's recommendation, a group of 3,250 doctors and scientists to go through the 450,000 um, documents that uh, the FDA was forced to release by a successful lawsuit. The court ordered them to release these papers. They asked the court to keep them hidden for 75 years till we're all gone. The court said no. So there was this vast trove of documents. And I was worried as a journalist that these would be um, kind of lost in, in, you know, down the memory hole because A, they're so voluminous, no reporter has time to read through them. And B, uh, they're written in such technical language. But Miraculously, these volunteers, you know, RNs, physicians, biostatisticians, medical fraud investigators, research scientists, lab clinicians, you know, across the world volunteered to read through them. And under the oversight of my COO, Amy Kelly, there are now six teams of experts, and they've produced 92 reports that I've taught these people to write in plain English so everyone can understand them. And you can read all of them on dailyclout.io, my news site. But these reports do document, unfortunately, the greatest crime against humanity in recorded history with a special focus on just what I was censored for, um, destroying the fertility of women and destroying babies. Not surprisingly, in 2022, around the world, nine months after the rollout in most of Western Europe, there's a 13 to 20% drop in live births all over Western Europe and North America. And Singapore and Australia, 13 to 20% drop in live births with stunning sub-data like double the number of stillbirths in Scotland, a highly vaccinated country, 89 stillbirths in Canada in one province when usually they have two or three. Dr. Thorpe describes five or six miscarriages a week when before they would have two a month. Absolute baby die-off is what I called it in an early essay about this. I know people who have lost children, babies, in, um, you know, and um, relatives after getting the COVID shot, being pregnant. Oh, yeah. And then and now, of course, uh, with their other little ones, I mean, they're told, oh, yeah, they can have a COVID shot. Um, and they're not getting their kids COVID shots. Oh, no. Thank, thank God. So yeah. the word is getting out, you think, even to, you know, to the. Yeah, no, I think so. I think these, and all of a sudden it was just an about face. I, I have no idea uh, what happened. It was, I mean, I gave some input, but I mean, who's going to listen to me? And when I'm the older relative and, you know, I'm always the one, you know, I like Donald Trump. So. You're and clearly. I'm <laughs> crazy. Right? <laughs> um, you did a speech at Hillsdale college recently. Mm -hmm. And but one of the things that you talked about was the fact that 
the it is a bioweapon. It's very tempting to think, well, they're just greedy. They couldn't stop. You know, they were making so much money. These are oversights. You know, we've had greedy corporations in our history before, the jungle, right? That's not what this is. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to tell you. I, I firmly believe, and I'll give you my evidence now, that this is a bioweapon and that we're under attack. You believe that COVID-19 is a bioweapon. And I've spoken with people who believe that as well, who also know about total war and fifth generation warfare. Right. And talk a little bit about that. Sure. So my independent reporting, let me step back. As my team of doctors and scientists were finding, creating report after report showing astronomical rates of neurological symptoms, dementias, Alzheimer's, Bell's palsy, Guillain-Barre. They were finding kidney damage, liver damage, half of the deaths within 48 hours of the injection in some categories, um, half of the adverse events within 48 hours of the injection. They were finding blood clots, lung clots, leg clots, thrombotic thrombocytopenia, which is uh, blood damage. Um, they were finding, you know, skin disorders, muscle disorders. Uh, they were finding that the vaccines did not work to stop COVID, according to the Pfizer documents. There, in but one month into the rollout, Pfizer concluded that the vaccine failed in efficacy, vaccine failure, and the third most common side effect in the Pfizer documents is COVID. You know, right? So why the whole drama? Why the mandates? Why did people lose their jobs? Right? Um, and then seeing that 72% of the adverse events were in women. Of those, 16% were, in Pfizer's words, quote, reproductive disorders. And seeing that there's a 360-degree focus in the Pfizer documents on disrupting women's uh, ability to conceive and bear a child to term, you know, everything from the lipid nanoparticles um, packing into the ovaries. And those are polyethylene glycol, it's petroleum product-coated industrial fats, right? Blo literally blocking women's ovaries. Um, to, uh, you know, men who were vaccinated being told by Pfizer not to have intercourse with childbearing age women, and if they did, to use two reliable forms of contraception. So in other words, Pfizer knows there's something damaging to women or to um the fetus or the zygote, right, in the semen of vaccinated men, you know, all the way to charts uh, in the Pfizer documents, keeping track of the damage they were doing to women menstrually, like you wouldn't believe it, like spreadsheets showing 15,000 women are bleeding every day, you know, 10,000 women have two periods a month, uh, 8,500 women are passing tissue, right, horrific things, right, you know, 7,000 women are hemorrhaging, I mean, you know, on early onset menses at 10, women in their 80s menstruating again. I mean, they, and they, they just clinically note it. You know, they know they're ruining women's menstrual cycles, meaning ruining women's fertility. They know that there's a section in the Pfizer documents that has um, an 80% miscarriage rate, spontaneous abortion rate. There's another eight-page pregnancy and lactation report that shows that they knew that um, they were killing babies in utero, at least two babies in utero. And they they note that the fetal deaths were caused by, quote, maternal exposure to the vaccine. They knew that their words, 
their words. And then they send this document. It also documents how sick babies were getting from nursing vaccinated moms, like vomiting, chills, fever, um, tissue swelling, convulsions. One baby died. And they, again, just a chart where they note they're torturing babies, right? And they're not telling women who are vaccinated not to nurse. And this this document goes to the White House on April 20th, 2021. And on April 23rd, 2021, Dr. Walensky gives a White House press conference telling the women of America to get vaccinated and saying there's no bad time to get vaccinated before your pregnancy, during your pregnancy, or after your baby is born. She has this document in her hand showing that babies are dying from this exposure. Um, I mean, I, I could go on and on, but the point is the focus of Pfizer documents is destroying human fertility. So seeing that, and again, my background is um, I'm a political consultant and a journalist, right? I was a consultant, as you mentioned, to Vice President Gore in 2000. I advised President Clinton's reelection campaign in 96. Um, so I kind of see things politically, right? So as a political matter, when you see all of this effort and focus in the documents on destroying a population's ability to reproduce, and you see this massive propaganda aimed at getting people to take a shot that will destroy their ability to reproduce. You have to think geopolitically, who's at war with us? You know, like the only way you get something like this rolled out is if it's an act of war. So I don't know that the virus is a bioweapon. It looks that way. But I know that the vaccine is a bioweapon. Um, and my independent research found that the Pfizer injections are made in a mem memorandum of understanding with China. A billion doses were produced by China, not for internal use, but for export. Uh, China takes another injection. Um, the SEC filing for the BioNTech, meaning the Pfizer injection in 2021, transferred the IP to China, meaning the formulation, the you know methodology of production, the distribution methodology. Um, 14 manufacturing plants were built by China in Western Europe and two in the United States. So now when you get, since 2021, when you get a Pfizer injection in North America or Western Europe, you're getting something manufactured, formula-owned, distributed, produced, packaged by a psychopathic regime that wants us dead, right? And, at, you know, and I'm very influenced by my husband, Brian O'Shea, in understanding the role of China and how China makes war on us because he's, um, you know, spent his career in military intelligence and then in intelligence. And he explained early on, like in March of 2020, he's like, China's behind this. And I'm like, honey, I love you, but that's crazy. And then he he showed me enough documentation to persuade me the way China wages war is through what they call unrestricted warfare, meaning it's not bombs, it's not invasions, uh, it's like regulatory capture, as you mentioned. It's elite capture, it's institutional capture. They buy up our ports, which is happening. They buy up our farmland, which is happening. They you know infiltrate our food supply or mess with our food supply, which is happening. Um, they flood our communities with fentanyl and other opiates, which is happening. Uh, 
they dumb down our children's curricula, which is happening. And why not take out the other superpower by infiltrating their pharmaceutical street? So that's what I see clearly has happened. And there are other bad actors aligned with them, like the World Health Organization, um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you know, the World Economic Forum. These are all kind of a, a constellation of bad actors. Um, but the goal is to destroy America. And then you look at who got mandated in America. It was, you know, I just had part of why I'm so tired, you'll have to forgive me, but I just had three days of hosting thought leaders in the freedom movement. And some of them were New York's bravest. Well, firefighters got mandated. They're, you know, they're dropping dead of stroke. They're having myocarditis. Pilots got mandated. Soldiers got mandated. Sailors, Marines, special operators, right? Uh, teachers, healthcare workers, all the people you need to keep a society going or to protect a society facing conflict or combat or invasion. So that also, you know, to me as a political analyst says war. And the last piece of evidence that I have um, is that there are 42,000 plus adverse events in the Pfizer documents in just three months, 1,225 in just three months. Um, the greatest number over 36,000 were in the United States. Excuse me. The second greatest number uh, were in Western Europe in order of political importance. So Britain, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Greece, right? And all the rest of the world combined, all the other 52 countries where this injection was rolled out, amounted to only 7,000 adverse events. So to me, that's not random. It means that they're taking out the West, right? They're taking out the West. They're taking out the United States and they're taking out Western Europe. Meanwhile, they're flooding, you know, um, and I'm the daughter and granddaughter of immigrants, no disrespect to legal immigration, but they're flooding North America and Western Europe with people who are migrating from countries that have no memory of constitutional rights or the rule of law. And so we're, we're like, as Ed Dowd says, just wait five years. You know, we're dying off. We're, we're getting um, disabled. Ed Dowd's uh, data from separate data sets confirm our data, right? And to a journalist, that's confirmation. It's a fact when two different sources confirm the same, you know, insight. Um, and he points out that a million people a year in the United States are in August alone, uh, self-identified as disabled. I'm sorry, a, mil a million people in a month, in the month of August, identified as disabled. And when you see what's in these documents, you see that, you know, some of these conditions are so disabling, like myalgia, you know, muscle pain, way neuro these neurological conditions, the menstrual conditions, disabling. If you're bleeding every single day of your life, you know, or passing tissue, you know, you're not going to be able to be a anything, you know, you're going to be a disabled person. So um, the that's my evidence that it's a biological weapon. And, you know, all of those things that you say could be looked at from your way. Also that, you know, the military, the teachers, those all those are people who all work at the pleasure of the government. And so they have control over what they can and cannot mandate against those people. So but but you can't deny that those are the people that make the you know, the trains run on time, the school bells ring, all of those things, very important things to society. 
And here we are with this evidence. And you believe that this is what's going on. And I I have no doubt about it now. I mean, I just, I've seen what they've done. I say they, this Borg, that is the government, that, you know, these IC people, the people that we've, who've gone after Trump for, uh, you know, he's a Russian super secret agent or something like that. Now that's absurd. And I bet you your husband knew that was jive. And the thing is, is that, um, a lot of people didn't. So they've been, you know, the, it's the mind game that we've got going on here. Now, here I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about and throw over to the soundbite, not at this point. We will do that in a second over the congressional testimony of Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger before the Weaponization of Government Committee in the House this last a few days ago at this recording. And in it, uh, Schellenberger really, they, they have new information that has just come out, which shows that our own military contractors were tasked and, and allowed and told to run on the American people what is tantamount to a PSYOP. Uh, you know, it's not really what you think it is. It's uh, to disabuse us of a uh, notion about election results as well as COVID. The censorship was just one part of what we saw happening both by UK and US so-called former military contractors, but also currently employed, including somebody that was working for the Navy uh, in 2020 when they created something called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, supposedly of volunteers, but many of these people were working actively for the Department of Homeland Security. We also saw people from the FBI working with social media companies to censor Americans. But what we discovered was basically a handbook that they had created to use psychological operations and disinformation tactics against the American people. These are tactics that have been developed abroad by the U.S. military and U.S. allies. So to see them turn against the American people, really in reaction to the Trump election in 2016, there was the sense in which Trump was elected because of social media. And these individuals, potentially with support directly from the government, were engaged in using these tactics in order to change the conversation online and engage in mass censorship, which is what we saw with the Twitter files, the Facebook files, and of course is now part of the Missouri versus Biden case that's headed to the Supreme Court. What do you, what do you make of that? You've personally experienced that kind of psyop. You've personally experienced yeah, being censored. I, honestly, it's terrifying. You know, it's I don't think it's possible to overstate First of all, how scary it is to be a private citizen and find out that the White House is discussing your Twitter feed, you know, and not in a positive way. Uh, you know, all the power, all the reach, all the authority. And something else that's super scary about those internal emails discussing me as a private citizen is that they looped in the Bureau of the Census for some reason. Now, what does the U.S. Bureau of the Census, Census know? They know where I live. And they know who's in my family, you know, who lives with me. So why, you know, why is the U.S. Bureau of the Census looped in? I, you know, like no one's ever answered that, but I, I just can't describe how, um, what a chilling effect it has on on speech and dissent and criticism of the government to find out that that, you know, that, ironically, an administration for whom I had voted. Um, you know, is, is singling you out as a citizen, you know, as having done something wrong, even though what they're doing is illegal because it's First Amendment protected speech and the government is not supposed to pressure 
third parties to censor the speech of citizens or restrict their rights. That's why there are these lawsuits against the government right now for having done that. Um, and I guess the thing that's coming into view, you know, now and Schellenberger and Taibbi are two important voices, but a lot of people are kind of um, pulling the, the the curtain back on this is that, uh, and, and it's also just launching publicly, right? This whole massively funded uh, censorship industrial complex. And it's not just in the United States, it's you know, Europe is even worse off. Like they've already passed laws to censor the internet in Europe. You know, there's criminalization of speech in Ireland. Um, we just had a member of the European Parliament here, um, and she was in Christian Anderson. She was incredibly eloquent about the fact that if you talk about the early years of Nazism and how the Nazis came to power in Germany bit by bit rather than all at once. That is now you can go to jail for doing that because that is a crime, trivialization of the Holocaust, right? So generations of German students are not learning that fascism arrives, can arrive bit by bit. Um, so yeah, you're seeing this kind of harmonization and you know AI and digital technology make it even scarier around the world. Uh, stated, you know, as an agenda by the World Economic Forum that we're going to restrict information. We're going to, you know, um, kind of crack down on misinformation. I think they tried to enslave the world fully through these COVID years, and it was really only alternative media like yours and mine, you know, the the dissenting doctors, the dissenting journalists, all three of them, you know, the dissenting um, scientists in alternative media that prevented people from being wholly taken in. And so now if they want to go to the next pandemic or whatever next scare tactic they have planned, you know, the 15-minute cities, the weaponization, climate change, et cetera, um, they can only do it if they restrict the flow of information. First, they try to restrict where you can and cannot go by determining what kind of cars you can drive, throwing you on mass transit, not allowing you freedom to go from to living in here and working over there to now they want you to be in 15 minute cities. And this has been going on. This the, the, the whole proof of concept has been in Portland, Oregon for decades. So they've already got this on lock. COVID was the proof of concept. What's coming There's next? You must have some insight. Oh, gosh. I mean... You know, it kind of came. I mean, I think that October 7th is, you know, real. Like what people really have to understand is something can be real and part of a, a scare campaign at the same time, right? And I first tried to explain this with my book, The End of America in 2008, about the global war on terror. You can have real terrorism and it's used as a... Oh. Um, a, a psychological tool. Exactly. To drive fear and compliance worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, so I think October 7th and this kind of um, artificially enhanced um, tribalism on both sides preoccupied people at a time when, uh, well, <laughs> at a time when laws were passed uh, in, in Europe to uh, censor the internet um, and people were distracted and we're going to have um, those kinds of distractions right up through May when there's a push to get that uh, WHO treaty uh, that drains us of our sovereignty through. And that, you know, that goal there is to do away with our nation states um, and to create this kind of global health 
matrix in which, um, you know, Bill Gates and his friends can declare a global pandemic. And then, you know, here in New York State, where I am sitting, uh, our governor won her appeal to create quarantine camps, you know, if 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 this uh, treaty goes through, but even if it doesn't, you know, with quarantine camps in a state of emergency, they can say anywhere that there's a public health emergency. They can define it however they want, and they can drag you off to a quarantine camp, and and that's that. I mean, that and the digital ID, which they're also rolling out, you know, which for sure is going to be linked to central bank digital currency, currency, pardon me, and linked to your social media score um, for a Chinese-style social credit score that can switch you on and off. Those are the things that I fear most at the top of the agenda. Yeah, well, I don't doubt that those would be next on the list for sure. Uh, Naomi Wolf has written Facing the Beast, Courage, Faith, and Resistance in a New Dark Age. You said that this has um, helped and buttressed your faith. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey for yourself and what happened? Sure. Well, you know, this picks up from when I was describing to you what it was like to see these 92 reports showing that, you know, humanity basically has been targeted with, if not extinction, a massive culling, right? Massive. And we're seeing it. We're seeing a 13 to 20% drop in live births. And, and the data confirm each other, like independent analysts are finding a 10 to 20% drop in, especially in Western Europe and North America, um, a million missing babies in Western Europe, right? So you've come face to face with this and it's very hard to wrap your brain around it. You know, like I think the idea that we're under existential threat has become very common in our side of the culture, but in 2021, into early 2022, when I was first bringing these reports to the world, it wasn't common. You know, I didn't want to believe it. I thought people who were talking about genocide were insane. And then I had to conclude there's there's this genocidal undertaking. Um, so how do you process that? I mean, you can give up, right? But I, I, I kind of looked at the unfolding of the bad things that had happened around the world, especially in the West since 2020, the global leaders, identical sound bites, identical policies around the world, you know, without any dissent, the anti-human orientation of these policies, you know, close the churches, close the synagogues, close the schools, mask the little children, you know, mask the faces of humans who are made in the image of God, you know, um, don't touch each other. Don't, you know, if you hug grandma, you'll kill her. Let the dead, let the elderly die alone. Um, no weddings, no funerals, no singing in church. Exactly. Like it doesn't make sense epidemiologically. It makes sense if your goal is to kill humanity and what makes us human and to kill human community and to kill the relationship of human beings to the divine. So, and, and then I just saw how um, synchronized it all was. And I've studied history, Victoria, very closely. And even the histories of totalitarian tyrants, there's always, in human history, there's always factions or derailments or backstabbings or assassination attempts or rich people who can't be bought or, um, 
you know, or failures or, or, you know, the Nazis not calculating on how cold the Soviet winters would be or, you know, some human mistake. And, and there was nothing like that, you know, in, in the evil I saw unfolding around the world. It was just not, I know bad human politics and bad human politics could not accomplish something so uh, smooth of such a massive scale with no dissent, right? So I had to conclude that there was something metaphysical going on and that we're not in human history any longer. We're in some sort of biblical history in which there's a massive evil that's been allowed to take up its presence in the world. And then concluding that, I sort of had to believe in God more literally than I had before because this evil must be directed at something good, right? Um, so then I, I, I did some more kind of wrestling with what is this evil? What is the nature of it? And I was not satisfied with, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but I was not satisfied with um, Satan, you know, because a couple of reasons. A, I'm Jewish and we don't really have a developed um, mythology of Satan in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Satan is kind of more of a lawyer figure in the Hebrew Bible, like an accuser, right? But well, Shoal's uh, a place, though. Yeah, Shoal is absolutely a place. No, you're absolutely right. Um, but it, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Satan narrative didn't do it for me because Satan still cares about human beings. Right. And Sheol is still organized around human beings. Right. It's still a human centric worldview, even though it's negative. But this energy I felt doesn't care about human beings. Right. We are insects. I mean, it doesn't care. It's not like antithetical to God. It's not antithetical to human beings. It doesn't want our souls. It doesn't want to tempt us. It just doesn't care about us. And so I read a book by Pastor Jonathan Kahn, who's a Messianic Jew, meaning Christian and Jewish, which is helpful, I think, in this case. And he kind of makes a, an argument that felt plausible to me that his book is called The Return of the Gods. And his argument is that, um, and I don't want to be literal about this, right? We're just kind of naming energies, right? There's nothing literal about it in my view. But his argument is that, you know, Basically, we've had a covenant for 2,000 years or 4,000 years, depending on how, it, you know, if you go back to Jesus or if you go back to the Hebrew Bible. And the, in the covenant, we kind of agreed to the Ten Commandments and we kind of consecrated, you know, San Francisco, San Mateo, Santa Catalina, you know, like we, we you know, America was consecrated, the city on the hill to God, like not to a specific um, faith because we have freedom of conscience, but it was consecrated to God. And so his argument is that this kind of consecration kept the pagan forces at bay, kept the kind of pre-Christian, pre-Jewish energies at bay, but that it recently we've kind of uh, released our hold on the covenant, becoming totally amoral, self-worshipping, you know, anarchistic morally, right? And this kind of left the room empty for dark forces to re-enter. Uh, and these are pre-Christian, pre-Jewish forces, right? And that resonated to me because as a Jewish woman, those are the forces that my people were um, tempted by struggling with uh, when when Yahweh was trying to say, just like, here's 10 commandments, guys. I'm not asking a lot, but we kept kind of going to Baal, right? Which is just sheer uh, sadism or going to Moloch, which is sheer violence, right? And Baal devours children, right? Child sacrifice 
or going to Astarte, you know, the, the priestess worship, which is um, unbridled sexuality, you know, with no respect for babies or the family. Um, and that made sense to me. Like this feels the way the pagan world would have felt before the Judeo-Christian ideal, you know, like hospitals overnight turn from places that are healing people to places that are killing people, you know, schools overnight turn from safe places where children are learning to places where children are being abused, you know, with like near suffocation. Um, how do you, how do you get whole institutions to become mirror images of themselves if, you know, without some metaphysical reoccupation um, by, uh, you know, by these pagan energies. So that that did make sense to me. That's how it feels. It feels like, you know, it's kind of to me, it feels like God has kind of said, you know what, you want to do it yourselves. You want to worship yourselves. You want to do without me. You want to do without the Ten Commandments. Okay, this is what it feels like, you know, and it kind of just stepped back. And, and in the stepping back, these dark pagan forces have have rushed in. So that's very subjective, but I, I really have we can been see it happening. You Sorry? can see it happening. You can see it happening from uh, replacing God with politics as a religion, from uh, uh, worshiping the sacrament of things that we do. Like some people say it's a sacrament of abortion. I mean, right. you're still child sacrifice still goes on. That's exactly what that is. And then the environmental movement, which has always put um, zero population growth and people in the back on the back burner before before well before anything else and so and that and that that's it all kinds kind of comes together and you said yourself that the first thing you did was to do a treatment of the green new deal and that really really made your people very very angry yeah i didn't realize how big a, a fight i'd be i'd be picking with powerful forces in 2017 when i read the Green New Deal. It's part of the mission of my news site, Daily Clout, is to you know read the bills, and uh, we have a database of, of bills that we've made socially shareable, so people can you know share bills, stop bills, promote bills. Um, but everyone was talking about the Green New Deal and how great it was, but I didn't see anyone linking to it, you know, and so people couldn't read the text of the bill. So I actually read the text of the bill and I'm an environmentalist. You know, I really care about the environment. Um, but I read this document. And it's like, this is this is essentially planned Marxist economy. I mean, it would have put like a fifth of the economy into the hands of 15 unelected committee members and done things like create new financial instruments with no transparency and you know, have no oversight of these 15 committee members. It it was just a complete centralized economy. It was a coup. It was a Marxist coup under the guise of environmentalism. So that was a very viral um, clip. And it actually, I think, you know, stopped the Green New Deal or helped to because the Green New Deal didn't pass, right? As you may have noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, they, and, they passed. Uh, they essentially passed it with the uh, the uh, portions of it with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And interesting. That's basically, what that, that 
Well, I mean, as I understand it, that sort of subsumed part of the objectives of the Green New Deal in right. that act and didn't do anything about inflation. It was basically, right. you know, forcing people to, you know, have X, Y, Z cars in 2035 and whatever, no, you know, with objectives and that sort of thing. I haven't read that one either. So, I mean, I'm just, you know, going based on what I understand from things I've read and and that sort of thing. But but I, I have no doubt about it. I, I have no doubt about it. It didn't in, reduce inflation. It didn't. Um, and all it does is want command and control economy, I, I believe. And, and I think that's what you've affirmed by reading the actual bill. Um, right. So, you know, circling back to the president, you mentioned this in your introduction, um, the forces that deplatformed me aren't done yet. Uh, this very famous writer named Naomi Klein, who's a Canadian um, environmentalist, uh, has written a whole book about me, I gather, and you guys and how awful you know conservatives are. Um, but the the book you know sought or seeks to further discredit me at a time that I'm revealing all these um, facts and truths about Pfizer documents. Well. I did a little bit of digging. I was trying to kind of just stay above it and not respond to it. But um, ultimately, the the threats and violence that um, the book contained, the, the kind of um, stalkery vibe led me to take a look. And sure enough, I'm not a look at the book, but a look at Naomi Klein and who's around her. Sure enough, as you mentioned, her husband, Avi Lewis, uh, at the time that Naomi Klein's book was going to press... He got a gig with something called Pharmacare Now, which is a boondoggle of boondoggles from the pharmaceutical industry, where um, it's a Health Canada policy in which the $42 billion a year that Canadians spend on pharmaceuticals, especially prescription drugs, would be paid for by one customer, the Canadian government, and it would take all competition and market forces away from their revenue stream because they could make they wouldn't have any competition anymore. They could make bad products that kill people and no one would stop them. They would cash these massive checks every year um, you know, that are funded by the Canadian taxpayer. So Avi Lewis is the spokesmodel for that while his wife is trying to discredit me. And not only that, her father-in-law, Stephen Lewis, uh, was the Canadian ambassador to the UN. When he was done with that, he started a nonprofit to bring, guess what, vaccines to Canada and COVID measures, I'm sorry, to uh, Africa and COVID measures to Africa. He has publications about intersecting pandemics and he's in the society pages um, celebrating with Bill Gates, Gates' $247 million funding of vaccines. And he sits on the board of a vaccine organization and he got $25 million from Gates for his own organization. So the whole Klein extended family is awash with pharmaceutical money. And that may explain why a distinguished intellectual spent two years of her prime career trying yet again to cancel me even further and discredit me even further. Um, so, I mean, is there a defamation lawsuit in your future against her? I mean, probably, but I'm so busy saving lives right now. It's got to yeah. wait until I have a moment. Yeah. Well, geez. Um so if you had one piece of information, I know Donald Trump's running for re-election. You're a political consultant. We're almost to the end of this interview. And as a parting shot, what advice would you give this guy? He's got 
every arrow in his quiver, but he's hated and loathed. Do you believe those numbers of hate, hate and loathing? Um, and what could he say that changed minds and hearts? Um, well, I, I have concluded that I can't believe anything that the legacy media says about him. You know, I, I don't even know how I feel about him because I realized that the legacy media just lied and lied and lied about him. So I actually wrote an essay about him because I saw him speak in person at a private event. And I was pretty impressed. I was surprisingly impressed. Um, he is not dumb and he's not hateful, you know, at least from the speech that we gave. Um, my advice for him, I think a Trump RFK Jr. ticket would be an unstoppable ticket. And it would be RFK Jr.'s fastest, most certain way to the presidency eventually. Mm. A lot of people like him. Yeah. But I read his book. And that, after that, I wanted to put uh, Tony Fauci in prison. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, the, I think the two of them kind of, um, it's like when Clinton chose Gore as his VP, some vice presidential picks balance out the flaws of the principal and vice versa. You know, so I think they'd be an incredible team. Um I would say he has a woman problem. I don't just mean the grab him by the pussy, you know, clip, which I realized was taken out of context when I looked at the original, but it's still not a good one. You know, it's not not as bad as it was represented because it's not non-consensual, but it's still not great. But um, I would say he should really let, you know, let his advisors should foreground Melania Trump as a speaker even though, you know, doesn't matter if she has an accent. We you know many of us come from other places. Um, she's a smart woman and she was positioned kind of more as a Barbie. Um, and that was a mistake. And I think she should talk about, you know, her journey, uh, you know, any women's issues, you know, her life as an entrepreneur, as a mom or, you know, whatever, whatever issues are near to her heart. And I also think that he should really showcase what conservatism offers to women, you know, especially suburban women, because those are suburban white women are the demographic that determine the outcomes of elections. And um, because of the choice issue, Democrats have kind of been able to rely on the gender gap. Um, I kind of think that the choice issue is now kind of taken care of in the sense that it's gone back to the state. So it's no longer something that that the Democrats can effectively use to use it in 2020. Her. Yeah. Yeah, but now it's done, right? Now it's mm -hmm. back to the states. I mean, yeah, there's you're the only liberal I've ever you're the only liberal I've ever heard um, who says that. Well, it's done. It goes back to the states. Well, that's exactly what we wanted. Th right. That whole Roe v. Wade was just a ridiculously decided a decision in, for, right. for the Supreme Court. It should have been in the. It was always in the states before that, and right. it should have remained there. But yeah. they wanted a holistic, we shall allow this because for whatever reason they thought, felt it was politically tenable or what have you. And we've been fighting yeah. over it for 50 years. Right. But I think I think that President Trump would do really well to say, you know, this decision has been made, you know, let's all unite and now let's look yeah. at what conservatism what conservatism offers women entrepreneurs, women, um, you know, property owners, women gun owners, right? There's so many things um, 
the conservative agenda, you know, safer, like the, the whole mom agenda, right? The, the coming after the children. I mean, schools aren't a federal issue, but he could go so far talking more about what, how women have been endangered, you know, by turmoil in the cities, how children have been endangered by crime, by, you know, de- decaying schools with perverse, you know, curricula. And I support LGBTQ rights, but like the trans story hour is like weird, right? Why is anyone talking to kids about any adult sexuality, right? So, uh, you know, but but especially like he's never talked, and it's partly an aesthetic thing. He always has his lawyers and his advisors who are super smart women look the same way, you know, with the, and no disrespect to them, but it's like, it, it doesn't reassure average women who are working two jobs, who don't have time for the hair extensions with false eyelashes or whatever. It doesn't reassure them that he understands their struggle. No, I'm not kidding. No, you know, I, I don't, politics yeah, I don't are know. very important in political messaging, as Absolutely. we know. So I really think he should do more events um, talking about what a, cons- a Republican agenda offers women and have, you know, smart women, business owners or journalists or um, investors or, you know, moms um, with him to, you know, be uh, surrogates. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Naomi Wolf and the book. I'll, I'll send the invoice to the Trump campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The, the, her, her book is Facing the Beast. Oof. Courage, faith, and resistance in a new dark age. True. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>